Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and I'm really excited today to be introducing to the Explaining History podcast um, the author and journalist Joanna Lillis who's here to talk with us uh, about her many years uh, reporting and writing in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan um, occupies this fascinating position for us as, as history students, sandwiched between uh, two new imperiums, I guess, the two uh, of the power blocks that will shape the 21st century, Xi Jinping's China and Vladimir Putin's Russia. But of course, throughout the 20th century, the fate of the Kazakhs has been pivotal to the fate of the rest of the Soviet Union, and the uh, experience of the Kazakhs under Stalin uh, is one of the areas that gets uh, chiefly overlooked uh, and unfairly ignored by uh, modern historians. Um, there are some who have discussed uh, the Kazakhs with reference to Stalin's purges, but by and large uh, their um, experience is, is somewhat overlooked. So uh, what we're going to do is go over to um, Joanna in a moment uh, and hear from her, her experiences in uh, former Soviet Central Asia, and hear about the writing of her new book, Dark Shadows, Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. And without further ado, let's meet Joanna Lillis. Thanks very much. Well, firstly, thank you so much for um, taking the time to have a, have a chat with us. Um, thank you for inviting me. It's great. Yes, yes. So where, whereabouts are you currently? Are you actually in Kazakhstan at the moment? No, I'm actually in Canada right at the moment. <laughs> no. Okay, okay. So... T- um, Tell us a little about your your um, your moves. Do you spend you because it says in the the, the press bump that you've been out you're in Kazakhstan for quite a long period of time. Is it sort of about sort of 
10 or 12 years or was that about that? 13 years I've been in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I'm normally in Kazakhstan. I'm just, um, I'm just traveling right now. So normally I'm most of the time I'm in Kazakhstan. What took you there? This is my, my first question. How, did, how does one go to um, Kazakhstan? Um, well, um, I studied Russian at university um, many years ago. And um, so I, after I graduated, the, it was kind of the time when the Soviet Union collapsed and things were very interesting. Yeah. And I moved to Moscow um, to look for work after I graduated. So that was, I graduated in 91, the same year that the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. And then um, my work gradually took me to Central Asia. I went to Uzbekistan working for BBC Monitoring. And mm-hmm. after I, my contract finished there, I moved to Kazakhstan to freelance as a journalist. So what, what year would you have arrived in Kazakhstan? Would it have been... I arrived in 2005. I first visited in 2001. Okay. Um, on, that was basically a holiday. And um, when I was living in Uzbekistan and I arrived in, um, I went to live in Kazakhstan in 2005. Okay, super, super. So in that period of time from 2005 to 2018, what, what has happened in Kazakhstan? Well, how has the kind of the, the country been transformed? Because... Um, it's, uh, to my understanding, there's been a dramatic transformation because of oil wealth. Isn't that correct? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I, when I arrived, they were, Kazakhstan was in the middle of an oil boom. Um, that's actually ended now. <laughs> I mean, as, given the price of oil has really fallen in the yeah. world and so on. Yeah. Um, so, but when I arrived, Kazakhstan was sort of booming. Um, so there's been quite a transformation. I mean, a lot of the wealth went to... You know, I mean, the, as in many countries in the world, the, a few people monopolize a lot of the wealth. Yeah. Um, however, life did get better for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a there's definitely a sense of frustration, though, in Kazakhstan among some people about um, just that the, the wealth hasn't hit, um, you know, everybody by any means. Um, mm. And villages, for example, rural Kazakhstan, they it's still very poor. Um, so although um, there's been a lot of oil wealth coming into the country, you know, there are many villages that don't even have running water in their houses. Um, yeah. And people feel quite frustrated about that. Um, if you look at Kazakhstan, I mean, the cities, especially the capital, Astana, and the commercial capital, financial capital, Almaty, where I live, you know, they're very shiny kind of cities. Um, very, mm. They look they look pretty rich, um, mm. and so do some provincial cities. But as I say, there's quite a divide between the urban wealth and the sort of rural poor. Yeah. And is it possible, has um, much of the, the kind of the infrastructure of the, the Soviet Union been erased, or does it, like in many Eastern Bloc countries, still kind of linger on? For example, I mean, if you go to parts of Poland, you, you see it, this sort of 1960s concrete brutalism and all, all that. Is, is yeah. the Soviet Union, the kind of the footprint of the Soviet Union still very clearly there in, in Kazakhstan? Yeah, I would say it is. I mean, you can definitely, as you say, when you go to you know Eastern Europe, you see it. And certainly in Kazakhstan, you, de- you definitely see it. I mean, it's there in the sort of way the cities look, um, although they've been transformed in the modern age, you mm-hmm. know, with, the, with all the shiny new buildings. But still, there are the, the Soviet tower blocks. There's still the city designs. And you can definitely... You feel you definitely feel that you're in the former Soviet Union when you're when you're walking around. Yeah, yeah. Because you see, one of the things that I find um, curious about about Kazakhstan in the podcast, I always try to kind of re- re- redress this um, as much as possible. There are there are things in popular historical discourse that people talk about and things that they don't. So when we're talking about, for example, Stalin 
Um, mm. You look at the the Soviet famines. By and large, it's just it's popularly understood that that meant the Ukraine, but that's not true, because mm. the Kazakhs mm. suffered terribly um, as a result of the Soviet famines. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, um, historical memories are kind of a, a complicated thing. But how do how do the Kazakhs remember the Soviet Union? How? It's a good question. I mean, um, in Kazakhstan, you know, um, on the part of the go- because the government is closely allied to Russia, mm. you know, that it's quite, it's, it's the past is a difficult thing um, for the Kazakhs, I suppose, and for and for the people of Kazakhstan, who are of course not only Kazakhs, Russians, and other minorities yeah. too. Um, now, now, because the government doesn't. Um, it's very difficult for the government to kind of reassess the past, not least because the president, Nozultan Nazarbayev, has been in power since the Soviet Union existed. I mean, he came to the helm of Soviet Kazakhstan in 1989, and uh, he's been the president since independence. So because he's a, wow. he's a legacy himself of the Soviet Union, it means that there's never been any kind of real attempt to look at the past and what it really meant. I mean, it's treated very, very cautiously. You mentioned the famine, for example. I mean, we know, of course, that in Ukraine, it's quite a politicized topic. It's officially deemed a genocide by the Soviets against the Ukrainian people. Mm. Um, In Kazakhstan, you know, it's treated much more cautiously. Um, The the administration of of Nusultan Nazarbayev doesn't want to anger the Russians and um, doesn't, and, and really... It doesn't want to come to terms with the Soviet past because Nur Sultan Nazarbayev was was a, a key official in in the past. You know, three decades ago, he was you know right up there, official uh, in Soviet Kazakhstan. Yeah, oh, I think we're just losing you there for a moment. Oh, there you are, smashing. Yeah, um, when you have um, countries like Kazakhstan. Um, um, but on the other hand, I mean, I mean, you know, some people, as in many parts of the Soviet Union, some people remember the, um, the former Soviet Union. Some people remember it quite fondly because, um, you know, they remember, you know, memory is a strange thing, isn't it? And um, mm-hmm. people remember many of the good things. So, you know, you're sort of the universal free education, free healthcare, and um, yeah. and all this. And of, and of course, memory blurs, and people, people, some older people, I would say, have quite rose-tinted um, vision of, of the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. And younger people, of course, nowadays, you know, they, they've been born after the Soviet Union collapse, and for them, it's all part of history. They don't really know that much about it. They only yeah. know what their parents might have told them. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, Kazakhstan's quite a sort of an ethnically diverse society, um, and a lot of that's got to do with, not completely, but a lot of that's got to do with obviously Stalin's mass deportations of the 1930s, moving ethnic groups around like pieces on a chessboard. So how has Kazakh society changed as a result of that? Because obviously all societies where there's been mass migration, you know, they go through transitions, don't they? Have the Kazakhs managed that well, or is there a lot of conflict? Um, no, that's a really good question. I mean, Kazakhstan was a real, um, you know, was really deeply affected by the Stalin period in terms of its demographics. I mean, it was affected um, before that as well. Even under Imperial Russia, there was um, major influxes of um, Slavic settlers that were brought to farm and to, to set up agricultural programs. Um, but as you say, I mean, in the, under Stalin, there was a massive 
huge um, transformation was wreaked on on society, you know, a sort of social engineering, really. Mm -hmm. Um, There was, um, as you say, mass deportations from other parts of the Soviet Union um, under Stalin. Mostly uh, that was a form of sort of collective punishment for groups that Stalin perceived uh, were disloyal. That began even before uh, World War II. it began under collectivization of agriculture in the 30s when um, those deemed kulaks or richer peasants who were uh, accused of sabotaging the program to, to force all the all the farmers into collective farms were, were deported to Kazakhstan from other parts of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and it continued, you know, it sort of gathered pace as well. I mean, the, the entire population of Chechnya, which is now part of Russia, Republic of Chechnya, was deported. Um, most of them ended up in Kazakhstan, uh, other, uh, a few in other parts of Central Asia, like Uzbekistan. Um, the Tatars were deported from Crimea, which, of course, has repercussions today because... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because the Tatars were deported from Crimea, um, Crimea that Russia annexed in 2014, um, you know, it, it changed their population. Um, and in Kazakhstan today, because of that, it's it, 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 it's um, it, it it had the effect that in fact, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Kazakhstan was the only Soviet Republic that where the titular. Uh, people, the Kazakhs in this case, were in the in a minority. Mm-hmm. Um, they were outnumbered by other peoples. Yeah. Um, so this had a massive effect um, on the country, and it reverberates obviously to this day. Um, nowadays, because of emigration of, of say Russians after the Soviet Union's collapse, and because of inward migration of Kazakhs from other parts of the world, which is encouraged by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, Kazakhs are in a majority; they form about two thirds of the population. But they have, you know, large minorities. Russians they form nearly twenty percent of the population, awesome. nearly a fifth. Um, as for how they've managed it, well. Generally speaking, um, the way that um, the Kazakh government has managed this is to, is to adopt an inclusive policy, which of course is to be applauded. Mm-hmm. Um, discrimination isn't tolerated um, on an official level. Um, and so um, linguistically, for example, Russian can be used. Um, it hasn't got exactly the same status as, as the Kazakh language, but Russian can be used in public life in the media, in politics, in government, and so on. Um, on the downside, the, this, uh, the fact that discrimination isn't tolerated is, of course, extremely positive. Mm-hmm. Um, on the downside, it means that the government d- refuses to discuss tensions where they do exist, because they do exist, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means that the government just refuses to discuss them because it doesn't acknowledge their existence at all. Mm. And sometimes, you know, this does spill over into minor conflicts, um, uh, which kind of split along ethnic lines. Um, this has happened in the past. Uh, for example, there was a sort of a small clash in southern Kazakhstan between uh, Tajiks and Kazakhs uh, a few years ago, and it sort of split along these ethnic lines. Um, but because the government doesn't acknowledge their existence, it does make it a bit difficult to have an honest and open conversation about, um, you know, identity and so on. Mm-hmm. And it also means that some Kazakhs feel a bit, um, you know, there are some Kazakhs who feel that they were marginalised under the Soviet Union when, of course, Russian was promoted as the language to speak and uh, and Russians were sort of first among equal in the Soviet Union. Uh, it was an open secret. Um, so 
it means that you know some Kazakhs feel that this hasn't been properly redressed over 27 years of independence. Actually, Kazakhstan just um, two days ago celebrated its 20, uh, 27th anniversary of independence. Mm. And there are some Kazakhs who feel that all these issues still have to be addressed. They haven't been addressed over the last three decades. Is there a generation in Kazakhstan, because um, obviously if you go back far enough, there was a, a generation that fought in the Second World War. Is there a, um, a, a, a generation of Kazakhs that see themselves as, or saw themselves as Soviet citizens, primarily? Absolutely, definitely. I mean, there was, there was. I, I would say after, you know, three decades, you know, that's faded a bit. But there was, there was definitely, you know, a generation of, of Kazakhs that definitely saw themselves as Soviet citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there probably there were many who didn't who didn't welcome the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and also, we have to remember when it comes to this question of the Kazakh identity, um, you, you mentioned the Stalin era, something that wreaked a massive transformation demographically on Kazakhstan. And you also mentioned the famine earlier. Um, now, under, the, under Stalin, um, it was official policy. It was decided in the late 20s that, you know, to basically wipe out the Kazakh way of life. Yeah. Um, the Kazakhs were nomads until then, until mm-hmm. that time. Um, there's a very interesting book that's just been published um, called The Hungry Step by a, an American academic called Sarah Cameron. Oh, yeah. Um, about the famine. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, she points out in, in this book that this way of life had existed for about four millennia mm-hmm. on the steppes, the great steppes around that area in Eurasia. And, uh, you know, under Stalin, in the space of a few years, it was simply wiped out. It was decided that the Kazakhs were living what was deemed a backward lifestyle and they mm-hmm. had to be brought into the modern Soviet age. So that's a massive trauma yeah. on the nation. Yes, an, an imaginable trauma. Um, there was something that Timothy Snyder said in, uh, he mentioned the Kazakh famine in Bloodlands. Um, and he said, um, I haven't, I need to perhaps do some more reading on this, but his view was the, 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 the Kazakhs would migrate, the, the tribesmen would migrate into China and back again and all over the, um, all, all over kind of to the East and the South. And Stalin's view was, well, China, that falls under the Japanese sphere of influence, and the Japanese are the bad guys to the east. Um, and this makes the Kazakhs very questionable. What are they doing when they're going into um, into China and coming back again? And what kind of trouble are they, are they causing? And I, I suspect that probably it wasn't simply... Um, because we, we tend to sort of kind of personalise these things, don't we? Say, so, you know, Stalin was thinking this, Hitler was thinking that, and therefore that's why policy changed as it did. But I suspect it was uh, something that was inbuilt in the kind of like the, the paranoid siege mentality of the kind of the, the post-Bolshevik generation that, looked, that per- perceived these sort of threats and fears where they didn't really exist. Um, though... Um, I, I don't. I'm not aware of really the Japanese having had any influence there at all. So. No, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think that that siege mentality of the that came about, you know, after after a brief kind of um, sort of um, more plural, more flourishing of more pluralism in the twenties, at least. Um, yeah. That siege mentality that came about from from the late twenties and into the thirties was probably instrumental in. Um, in 
you know, in, in sort of the impact on Kazakh society and other societies in the Soviet Union as well, because um, it, w- it, it, it there was a, a push then, everybody has to conform, everyone has to agree, everyone has to be the same. Yeah. And it being the same it meant, in this case, being Soviet people yeah. um, and, um, you know, driving Soviet agenda. And, of course, the Kazakh nomadic lifestyle, more freewheeling. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. It simply didn't fit no. all that. And I think there was also... Um, of course, in eastern Kazakhstan, where the border with China, long border with China is, some of the Kazakhs did. Their ancestral Roman grounds would have been on either side of the border, and it wasn't until the borders were, were sealed that, um, you know, then people were separated, mm. um, including from their relatives. Um, and also, um, certainly um, in The Hungry Step, the book I just mentioned by Sarah Cameron, she documents how um, this border was then controlled in the 30s, in the early 30s, to prevent um, Kazakhs from going over to China in search of food, starving Kazakhs. And yeah. in fact, you know, the policy was to shoot them dead as counter-revolutionaries. Yeah. So it? a very traumatic mm-hmm. uh, experience and one that, you know, in, in the famine, which was also um, caused by the collectivization of agriculture, the requisitioning of food stocks for the Kazakhs, this meant meat for the Russians and Ukrainians, grain, of course, mm-hmm. and also by this policy of forced sedentarization of the Kazakhs. Um, nobody knows exactly how many people in Kazakhstan died in the famine. It's not been possible to document it to this day, although efforts are underway in Kazakhstan. But it is, it's, you know, it's almost certain that at least a quarter of the pre-famine population died, at least 1.5 million people. Yeah. Some Kazakh historians think 2.1 million people. And the, the Kazakh culture and society that was, was crushed by Stalinism, has anything been able to be salvaged, really? Do, uh, have, have the Kazakh people managed to kind of hold on to remnants of, of the past, or is it really a very new society? They have. Um, I mean, Kazakhs still sort of celebrate their their nomadic past as something that's part of their identity, um, you know, even though it was wiped out inside Kazakhstan in the 30s. Um, but they still celebrate that, and they still hold on to many, many, many traditions. Um, they still also, most Kazakhs um, can tell you, can tell you their, their their genealogy back to seven generations, which is a Kazakh tradition. Part, part of that was for a nomadic society to keep the bloodline strong and to prevent intermarriage within mm-hmm. seven generations. Um, also, Kazakhs, they still celebrate many, um, they have many um, traditions associated with, you know, life, with birth of children, with, uh, um, they have lots of interesting traditions that date back to that society. Uh, for example, they have a, a tradition called Tusakeser, which is when a child starts to walk and they tie the child's legs and um, some a respected person is chosen to cut the string and the, the parents hope that the child will resemble that person in their life. So, so they have lots of traditions and they celebrate that past. Um, also, um, now Kazakhs in other parts um, elsewhere, it was only in the Soviet Union that... Um, Kazakh lifestyle was actually wiped out. And, you know, in, in Mongolia today, the western part of Mongolia, um, uh, western Mongolia, there's a province that's about 90% inhabited by Kazakh people mm-hmm. um, in, on the borders with Kazakhstan, um, or in borderlands, uh, although Mongolia doesn't directly border with Kazakhstan. But yeah. um, those people today still maintain that nomadic lifestyle or, or semi-nomadic lifestyle, perhaps. Um, and, and you know, these, in, in, in many cases in Kazakhstan, people consider those 
Kazakhs to be the guardians of Kazakh culture, to, to have uh, safeguarded the culture that was wiped out under Stalin. So people still remember and celebrate that, that Kazakh culture in Kazakhstan today. What do you think um, the introduction of, you know, po- post-1991 kind of turbo capitalism into the Soviet Union or the post-Soviet Union did to Kazakhstan? Um, because it's as a kind of uh, as as dislocating and radicalizing um, a, a, an ideology as Soviet communism, really. Mm-hmm. Um, how did I mean? Has a kind of a capitalism with Kazakh characteristics emerged? Would you say, or is something something different happened? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mean, definitely, it was a very traumatic time um, in Kazakhstan. I mean, in all of the Soviet Union, um, especially those that the the countries, the newly independent countries that embraced a, a sort of thing. Well, in Russia, they called it shock therapy, didn't they? Yeah. The, this kind of rapid, we're not going to have any kind of transition. We're just straight into capitalism, full blow. Um, no safety, the safety net kind of pulled away um, just to a large degree. And that Kazakhstan also um, did a, quite a rapid fire transformation other countries in Central Asia a bit more slowly um, so in some cases. But it was extremely traumatic. I mean, the you know, the, the country was, you know, on by all accounts, I mean, the country was pretty much on the verge of collapse economically. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that in the, you know, the industrial zone of Kazakhstan and to the south of Russia in the north of Kazakhstan, the factories were collapsing, people's work was lost, um, the social safety net kind of was pulled out away from them, um, farms were lying idle, um, there was no money in the country. And the 90s were a very, very difficult time for Kazakhstan. Um, I mean, um, the... the the president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, just believed that it was better to have a short, sharp shock and to transition into capitalism quickly. Um, and th- then um, in from about, from about the late 90s, from about, um, you know, 98, uh, the oil boom started. Now, mm-hmm. that was, you know, then money started to... to to, to be made. Um, but before that, you know, there were times when inflation was well over a thousand percent. The salaries were collapsing, salaries weren't paid. So it was a hugely, hugely traumatic time. Um, it was presented, I think, to the people of Kazakhstan as a necessary evil, really. I mean, it's something that they had to go through in order to sort of um, change and transform into the modern age. So it was another time of massive transformation. And how 
how receptive were Kazakhs to that that message? Is that by and large been accepted as something that was valid, or is that now looked back on as uh, kind of snake oil? I would say um, nowadays um, it's sort of people. It's kind of quite far behind people now, I yeah. suppose. Um, you know, nearly twenty twenty years about, um, and I think people do now see it as a. I think. Partly because they've been told to see it this way, perhaps. Um, you know, and Kazakhstan doesn't have free speech, so no. what the government says kind of goes. Um, but I think they've been, they do see it as something that they had to go through in order to change. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think also, you know, the, after, from the late 90s, um, sort of, um, well, that first of all, a few people got very, very rich. And many of them were, of course, relatives and cronies of the president, um, you know, that there was that element and people were resentful of that. Mm. Um, from the late 90s when the oil boom started, you know, middle classes started to emerge and they started to feel more benefits of um, mm-hmm. capitalism, I suppose. Uh, so, for example, you know, people had never been able to travel before. And um, nowadays, you know, many people in Kazakhstan can afford to go on holiday to Turkey or something in the summer. And, they, you know, they, they enjoy those benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, however... You know, there has been, there was a time when people, when the government presented this as, you know, the wise policies of, of Nazarbayev and so on. Um, it's sort of bringing new benefits. Um, however, you know, then came financial crisis in 2007, 2008, as it, you know, hit many parts of the world. It hit Kazakhstan extremely hard. Yeah. Um, and again, um, another round of crisis came in 2014 uh, because Kazakhstan economy is so closely tied to Russia and Russia was in crisis because of its um, annexation of Crimea, sanctions imposed by the West and so on. Um, So, you know, I think um, there's there's definitely an element that people also see that the government, when things are going well, the government presents as as the wise policies of your precedent and they expect the people to buy that. And yet when things are going badly, it's presented as a global phenomenon that I'm afraid you're going to have up with it. <laughs> yeah. So pretty so, much like you know. uh, pretty much like everywhere really. The uh yeah. So I mean the, the the great change that's coming I suspect for uh, the Kazakhs isn't coming from Moscow but from Beijing. Um mm-hmm. because Xi Jinping um is building his sort of like belt and road um uh, network of of trade routes and one of them goes really straight through Kazakhstan. Um mm-hmm. what are Firstly, I think it, it must be, to put it mildly, an interesting experience to be sandwiched between two, you know, imperial powers like that. Um, and I'm guessing uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev has to play his game very carefully politically. But what are relations like between um, Kazakhstan and China? Um, are they quite cordial? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, being sandwiched between two giants like Russia and China, who were both with huge political ambitions and and also economic, um, it is, uh, as you put it, an interesting experience. It means that, you know... um, it also can be a frightening experience, I think, as in the case, for example, in 2014, when Russia actually invaded, you know, took, seized part of Ukraine, another neighbor on the other side of the former Soviet Union. Um, but going back to China, 
um, China's become increasingly important in relations with Kazakhstan. I mean, Kazakhstan manages its kind of geopolitical conundrum of being sandwiched between these two giants by um, adopting a policy of being kind of friendly to everyone. They call it a multi-vectoral foreign policy. We don't pick fights. Um, you know, they, they try to maintain cordial relations with all neighbors in all parts of the world, including the West, in fact. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of China, um, Kazakhstan has welcomed, you know, it's very much welcomed the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, there's a lot of talk in the world about how, you know, it's all in China's interest and it's all about tying these countries in with loans and so on. And that it's, you know, very much in China's interest. Of course, it's in China's interest because that's why they've adopted the policy. However, for a country like Kazakhstan, you know, investment in infrastructure is extremely welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very oil dependent economy. And so any investment in something that can make it less dependent on oil is welcome. And so the government has wholeheartedly, you know, um, embraced the Belt and Road Initiative and, and taken on, you know, there's, there's supposed to be about $50 billion worth of, of infrastructure projects wow. involving the Belt and Road in Kazakhstan, although it's quite hard to actually pin down the figures and, and actually see what's really happening and what's just on paper at the mm -hmm. moment. Um, but also there is another problem in, in, in Sino-Kazakh relations, which is... Um, there's been a lot of publicity in the Western media over the last few months or, or more even this year and even going back to last year about the existence of these these camps. They call, they call them re-education camps in the Xinjiang province of, of China, which borders Kazakhstan. And um, these camps, um, according to the, the United Nations, are probably housing up to a million people, yeah, um, minorities Uyghur. in China. And they, they're the biggest minority in that part of China is the Uyghurs. Mm. Um, uh, but they're also housing Kazakhs who, who are Chinese-born Kazakhs um, mm. who live in, in China and have Chinese citizenship. And so this has created a bit of a, a, a problem for Kazakhstan because there are some, there's a lot of concern in Kazakhstan about what is happening to Kazakhs. Why are they being housed in camps that really are concentration camps intended to kind of eradicate their lifestyles and, and make them embrace the Communist Party? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so there's a lot of concern in Kazakhstan about that, um, and it's creating quite a problem for the government. Now, the government has not criticized China publicly about, about this, um, but it says it's working behind the scenes to try and alleviate the problem and, mm -hmm. and you know, yeah, um, but that does mean that um, it, it does create a little bit of a, an issue in in relation in political relations between Kazakhstan and China. But as I say, Kazakhstan's main policy is to be friends with everybody because when you're this huge, thinly populated country sandwiched between these two giants with huge ambitions and also that can be quite aggressive in pursuing those ambitions, mm. you have to tread quite a fine line diplomatically. Yeah. Yes, it's. Uh... Um, perhaps they recall what happened to Poland, you know. Yeah. Um, finally, um, let's talk about the book. Um, so it's called Dark Shadows, um, and it's really a kind of um, part history, part journalistic, in, um, sort of uh, journey, really, through Kazakhstan, isn't it? And the, um, the book really um, takes you to all sorts of different levels of, of, of Kazakh society. And um, uh, at least some of the book is, is focused on a lot of the, the, sort of like the kind of the, the, the corruption, really, that has um, 
um, that, that exists there. Um, how easy was it, it actually in a society like Kazakhstan to write the book in the first place? Um, was, were there any difficulties? Um, there were a lot of difficulties um, in terms of trying to, you know, marshal, obviously, like any country, it's a complex country. So for me, the main difficulty was trying to marshal that into something, you know, comprehensive and also comprehensible and something that would be, mean something to a Western reader. Um, in terms of difficulties um, with access and so on, um, you know, I mean, Kazakhstan is... Is it takes a very repressive line to its own journalists, um, and it, you know, it it, it 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 doesn't allow, you know, free reporting in the Kazakh media, for example. Um, it's quite, you know, repressive from that point of view. However, it does allow foreign journalists to operate, to 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 officially work in the country. Um, you know, I've worked there as a foreign journalist for for thirteen years with official permission, and mm-hmm. and I, I haven't had, um, you know, uh, any particular restrictions imposed on my work, although there were times and they are in the book when, you know, the, 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 when the government has tried, maybe tried to control some of the, some of the reporting um, on some of the more tense aspects. I'm thinking, for example, about the shooting of oil workers in Western Kazakhstan um, during um, unrest, um, industrial unrest in 2011, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, as I say, I, you know, I, I, I've lived and worked in Kazakhstan for 13 years. So the, the reporting for the book was done over a long period of time. Um, and generally speaking, you know, being, being there for a long time um, just has allowed, um, you know, access to people, people to talk freely and so on. And as I said, there wasn't any great attempts to control no. what I wrote. Okay. Um, super. Well, um, that was really, really great. And we, we're going to um, finish in a moment. Um, but be, before we do... Um, I suppose the, the the last thing I'd like to ask is where do you where do you see um, where, where do you see Africa, sort of Kazakhstan going, if you will, in the the, the kind of the current circumstances it, it exists in, um, you know, being sandwiched between Russia and China, having this oil boom and then a decline in oil wealth. What is what do you see as being the kind of the the, the future for the uh, for Kazakhstan? Is it a kind of a, a particularly um, inviting one, or do you think that there are difficulties ahead? I think um, it's a very good question. I mean, it, and it's certainly one that's on the lips of many people in Kazakhstan, um, mostly because. Um, as well as it's called a sort of global position, as in sandwiched between Russia and China and in this sort of strategic part of the world, there's also the question of, um, you know, uh, of its political future, of, of who is going to lead the country after Nursultan Nazarbayev. And that's the one that really bothers people in Kazakhstan. Mm. Um, you know, really is something that people talk about, wonder about. And the... You know, the interesting part of this is, you know, Nelson Tanazabayev, he's 78 years old, so he'll be, he'll be 79 next year. Um, he's been in power for all of Kazakhstan's 27 years of independence and before that, in mm-hmm. fact. In fact, next year he will have been 30 years at the helm of Kazakhstan, first Soviet Kazakhstan, then independent Kazakhstan. Um, and he, he doesn't, at the moment, show any, you know, he doesn't show any particular signs that he's preparing to step down. He's yeah. allowed, he has personal... Um, 
privileges, personal uh, privileges in the Constitution that allow him to stay in power for life. He has to stand for election. But in Kazakhstan, you know, he last won re-election with 98% of the vote, which is, you know, a rather astonishing figure and one that, you know, many people are sceptical about. Um, but what people wonder is, he's a towering figure. I mean, yeah. love him or, or hate him, <laughs> he's a towering figure over Kazakhstan. And, and, you know, really, a lot of people can't imagine what the future holds without Nazarbayev. What is the future for Kazakhstan without this figure, you know, who's who's built the whole country for in, in their minds. Um, so that's, I think, the thing that really bothers people in Kazakhstan. And also, um, you mentioned this, this, this question of its geopolitical, geographic and geopolitical position between Russia and China. Well, people also worry about that. What, you know, what may Russia do after a change of power? You know, we Nazarbayev uh, has good relations with Russia, but, you know, the next person is also going to have to tread a very careful and fine line and mm -hmm. won't have the political clout and international clout that, that Nazarbayev does, having been in power for so long. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is a very big question. I mean, the way that the the government is currently dealing with it is, is to sort of increase repression on the population to make sure that, um, you know, they, they don't want any unexpected surprises. And that, you know, that obviously is not, not a good thing, not a positive no. thing. There's, you know, it's been there's been a lot of political trials this year about people who express dissatisfaction on social media, just ordinary citizens. Now that is not a positive thing. Um, so at the moment, um, I think it's very hard to predict what the future holds for Kazakhstan. I would guess that the the authorities will try and implement, you know, choose a candidate to replace Nazarbayev. Um, when the time comes, mm -hmm. whenever that is, but it will have to be in the next few years, really. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they, they will have to try and juggle this fine line again by maintaining Russia, not angering Russia, because, you know, everyone's seen what Russia can do to a former Soviet country in Ukraine that's snatching a bit of its land and stoking separatist unrest. And yet it will want to keep China on side as well. So I think it's going to be a very challenging um, mm -hmm. time ahead for Kazakhstan. Cool. Well, hopefully um, we can have an update at some point and uh, have you back on the podcast maybe in, in the in the future. Um, that would be great. Yes. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. Very, very, very grateful. And it was um, a lovely and illuminating chat. And, um, thank you, Nick. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Can I just ask you before you, if you've got two yeah, seconds, sure. I'd love to know what made you start the podcast. And you see, you know a lot about the Soviet Union. I can see that. Yeah, um, it was a complete accident, basically. I'm a history teacher. Mm. And I just wanted to do something a bit different for my students. And then oh, wow. everyone around the world started to listen to it. Um, and I did my, I did my master's degree um, in uh, basically Stalin. Um, so, um, that's, I do, I record a lot about the Soviet Union and other mm. things too. Um, but that's what I was kind of, my, my background is, is in really. So yeah, the, the podcast is a happy accident. Um, and it gradually grows over time. Um, and as long as people enjoy it and keep listening to it, I'll keep doing it. It's great. I, I've really enjoyed talking to you as well. Thanks oh, so much. Thanks. Well, have a lovely Christmas and maybe you catch too. you sometime next year. Great. All the okay. Bye-bye. And Dark Shadows by Joanna Lillis is uh, available now in all good bookshops and e-tailers and retailers, uh, published by IB Tourists. 
uh, and uh, a great read. Um, so enjoy your Christmas everybody and I'll see you all at some point in the new year. Take care, bye bye.